As we begin to plan our fall semester classes, most of us don't know whether we will be teaching in a face-to-face or a remote environment during part or all of the fall semester. This makes the course development process more challenging. In this episode, we discuss how activities may be used to help support student learning in any course modality. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. We should note that we recorded this podcast in early March before most campuses closed in response to the global pandemic. The content of this discussion, though, is at least as important now as it was at the time of the recording. Our guest today is Dr. Darina Slattery. Darina is the Head of Technical Communication and Instructional Design at the University of Limerick. She is also the Vice President of the IEEE Professional Communication Society. Welcome, Darina. It's good to talk to you again. Thank you very much, John and Rebecca. Our teas today are, are you drinking tea? Not at this minute, but I do drink a lot of tea, just regular Irish tea. <laughs> you know, we should have done that. I considered it this morning and I was like, oh, I'm making a mortal sin this morning by choosing something very different, but I have black currant tea today. Oh, very nice. <laughs> I don't drink coffee at all, even though most people here do, but I just drink a lot of tea instead. We do too. Okay. All day long. Very good. And I have an apple spice chai tea today. Oh, I've never tried that. That's unusual. This is my first time trying it. Good luck. <laughs> is it good? I'll know more. I just made it. So we invited you here today to discuss e-tivities. Can you explain to our listeners what is meant by an e-tivity? Okay, so an e-tivity basically is a structured activity that's typically hosted on a discussion forum. So e-tivity is just really short for electronic activity. But specifically, the concept of e-tivity came from Jilly Salmon. So Julie Salmon is famous for her work on the five stages that learners go through for teaching online. And she's famous for coming up with this structure. It's very simple structure, but it's a very useful one. So typically, activities, as I said, they're hosted in a discussion forum, but they don't always have to be about discussion topics. An activity can require a student to do anything. So typically an activity, it's instructions and it starts off usually with some kind of a spark. So the spark could be like a controversial statement that you want students to debate. It could be a relevant or a thought provoking image, or it could even be a link to a YouTube case study or something. So something that you just want to get them going with whatever the activity is about. And then the second component then is the purpose. So that's just essentially where you state the objective of the activity. Then you've got the task, and this is the hardest part to write for an activity. It's where you give step-by-step instructions to students about what you want them to do, where you want them to do it, how, when. You might have a word count, the deadlines. There could be multiple parts to the task. And then the fourth typical component is a respond section. And the term is a bit misleading because it suggests that you don't have to respond to the task. You do, but the respond part means respond to one of your peers based on what they submitted for the task. So I wouldn't always have that part. I don't always have the collaborative element, even though all students can see each other's responses because it's hosted or stored in the form. So that's essentially what it is. It's just a very organized activity that has certain components. 
and students very quickly then kind of become familiar with what an activity looks like and what's expected of them. And so you state explicitly the purpose, so they see the motivation then as part of that? Yes. In my case, not everybody does this, but I always grade my activities as well. So it's always aligned with the objectives of the module and they're going to get grades for it as well. And it's aligned, you know, aligned with the content that you're teaching in the classes as well. Can you give an example of an activity? Yes, I can give you lots of examples, actually, <laughs> but I'm just trying to think of some of the more useful ones. So one that's particularly useful that I use at the very start of my courses. So students I teach are online and on campus. So I have both groups taking the same courses at the same time. So rather than have kind of one method of teaching one group and a different method for the on campus, I have them all accessing the same lecture materials and podcasts and so on. But also the way they engage is through activities. So whether they're physically in the room in front of me or online, they're all doing the same activities. We have a program that teaches them about technical communication and e-learning. And a lot of the students on the program would be from very different backgrounds. They wouldn't have any prior background in writing or teaching or anything like that. And for many of them as well, they're mature students, they're postgraduate students. So they might not have ever used virtual learning environments before. So in the very first week of their program, I give them an activity which asks them to do a learning style survey. Now, I know there's a lot of controversy about learning styles, and I'm not going to argue either way about that for now. But the purpose of it really is to get them into the VLE, to find an activity in the right place and to respond in the right place. And it just happens to be an activity that's highly relevant to instructional design students but it's one that can be done by anybody. So they follow the instructions, the activity, they go and do the learning style survey, they review the results, and then they have to write a small passage in the form about whether or not they agree with the findings. So if it says that they're a visual learner and they don't think they are, or they prefer text or whatever, they just have a bit of discussion about that. So it's a really good way to engage them with the VLE very quickly. So by Friday of week one, they kind of know how we're going to teach, how we're going to run the module. So it's really very much of a kind of an icebreaker activity. But then I have more elaborate ones then. So my students have to design and develop an e-learning course. And so in the instructional design course that they take with me, they have to propose a topic that they would like to develop. So it could be something that they're personally interested in or something they know from industry that it's needed. So they have to propose a topic, outline the characteristics of the audience, so do an audience analysis or a preliminary audience analysis, talk about what technology the audience might have, and then also provide some peer feedback to other people. Because it's all in the forum, they can see each other's contributions and then they can decide oh, I know a bit about what Mary proposed there. I'm going to give her some resources that might help her. Or John has said he wants to develop a course about safe cycling in the city. Uh, there's this brilliant book that he should have a look at and so on. So it's a way of kind of structuring the tasks you might get them to do in a face-to-face -face tutorial, but it's just that they read the instructions in the activity, in the forum, and that's where they also reply. And everybody else can see the reply as well. So because it's asynchronous as well, it's really helpful because the quality of their answers tend to be better than they might be in a face-to-face -face classroom, for example. They've had a bit of time to consider them. We were talking before we started this particular interview about COVID-19 and people moving to online learning and things like that. And eTivity seem like an opportunity to transition quickly to online potentially. Yes. Are there tips for doing an eTivity for the first time? Maybe things that faculty might not think about the first time out that we could help them think about the first time out? <laughs> yeah, well, certainly. I mean, I think the most important thing about the activity is to know what the core components are. And like, I wouldn't always have, for example, a spark for my activity. I might just state the purpose of it. And then I put most of my effort into giving the step-by-step -step instructions. And what I often find is that my colleagues, in their head, they know what they want the student to do, or they know what the end product will look like. 
But when you actually have to write out the instructions, and you're not physically present with the students. You suddenly realize, oh, I have to specify that and I have to specify that. And oh, I better tell them where do they reply to this message or do they reply in a different form? That's really for most people where the challenge is that they don't realize how much extra guidance they normally give face to face or students email them and they give them a bit more information or the students stop them in the corridor and they give them a bit more information. In a nativity, the work goes into being as clear as possible. And if you're really clear, I guarantee you students will do the right thing in the right place. If you're not clear, their answers could end up anywhere. They could end up being emailed to you. They could end up in the wrong forum or whatever. So really, it's about putting the effort into the task and having a kind of a manageable task. Because I know when I think back to my early days of doing nativities, I had a nativity nearly every week, for example. You know, but they might need at least a week to do the nativity and to read around the topic before they can give a good answer. So over the years, I've kind of cut back and I've just kept the most critical activities and I've spread them out a little bit more as well. What I really like about activities is that anybody who's moving into online, they almost definitely will have access to a forum in their VLE. And if you've access to a forum, then the only thing you have to do, there's no technology to be installed or anything like that, is you just have to put some careful thought into what you want the students to do, where, why, when, and so on. So if there's multiple parts, just think carefully about the dates of those, that if part B is dependent on part A being completed, you have to give enough time in between them, bearing in mind that online students probably have other commitments during the day and so on. So it's a great way to get your students engaging online without it being a technical challenge for you as an instructor. It's really more of a kind of instructional design challenge, really. Going back a little bit to that first example you use, I'm, I'm a little concerned because we've had a number of podcasts where people have talked about learning styles as a myth. I'm wondering, should we maybe address that argument just a little bit? In terms of the learning styles, what I do with the students, I want them to be aware of the challenges and the issues and the critiques of learning styles as well. So when I ask them to do the survey, I also give them links to some articles about the issues with learning styles. And I make it very clear to them that I'm not pushing learning styles or insisting that they have to believe the results that come back. It's an icebreaker activity, that it's an activity that will get them at the very least to stop and think about how they think they learn. So even if they strongly disagree with the results, that's fine. And I want them to actually say that, you know what I mean? That it's not a mark for, do you agree with this? And if you don't, I have a problem with you. It's very much about stop and think about how you like to learn. Okay. And I'm giving you a nativity that just happens to be relevant to your study as well. What I like about your icebreaker mm -hmm. in this way is that it encourages students immediately not to have to be on the agree train, right? <laughs> like yes. agree with everything the faculty has to say all the time. And that would seem like it gives them permission right from the first activity to disagree or have different perspectives, which I could imagine would be a really important thing to set up at the beginning of an online course. It is because we often say this to students, but most of the time they look at us as, well, you're the expert. And if I disagree with you, it might affect my grades and stuff like that. And they don't realize maybe that you don't mind if they disagree. And if they have a valid reason for disagreeing, that that's extremely valid. And so, yeah, I do like that aspect of it because it kind of sets the stage for even just making them a bit more critical of what they read. So like MOOCs were all the rage of 2011. They were the worst thing ever in 2012. Now they're back in and then they're gone again. And I need my students to think like that about, you know, whatever the latest trend is might not even exist tomorrow. And the same 
same goes for theories. You know, anytime somebody comes up with a new theory, it's going to take a bit of time before people evaluate that theory and determine whether it's really valid or not. And that that's okay because they wouldn't really be thinking like that when they come into our program. You know, they've probably been away from education for a long time. And in my experience in undergraduate programs, they don't do a lot of critical thinking. So this is the start of that, even if they're not as aware as I am of why I'm doing it. You know, I'm trying to emphasize it anyway. You've used the term VLE several times. Could you explain to our listeners what that means? Because that term isn't as commonly used in the U.S. Virtual learning environment. Sorry. I actually say LMS quite a lot. When I say LMS, other people say, what's an LMS? So VLE, virtual learning environment, or LMS, learning management system, are the same thing. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about advantages of eTivities over other strategies to use in online learning? Yeah, of course. Well, one of the major draws for faculty, when I say to them that there's no technical skill required, it doesn't require you to have a more supercomputer to be able to install something. You don't have to go out and buy any new equipment. If you have access to a VLE, you'll have access to a forum. So it's a simple, inexpensive way of engaging your students. One of the things that people often say to me is, you know, that's fine for you. You teach tech writing or instructional design. Of course, you can do that kind of stuff. I teach artificial intelligence or maths or science or whatever. How would I do a nativity for that? If you can give students a piece of instruction about your topic, it can be turned into a nativity. Over the years, I've tried to collate some activities from different disciplines and I put them up on my website. The science and engineering people are a bit slower to engage in professional development for teaching in general. But those who do, I have like supply chain management. We have a new master's in artificial intelligence. They're using all activities to engage their students and their students are industry professionals working in AI and they are really loving the engagement with the activities. I have colleagues who teach languages using it management, marketing are using it. It's really about what you want the students to do, ask them to do it. And the important thing about nativity is the student's response doesn't have to be a text-based response in the forum. You put the nativity in the forum, they get used to going there for them, but sometimes the nativity will require them to go somewhere else and do something. So the nativity could say, go away and interview an expert in your field and come back and upload a file or tell us what you learned from that interview. Or I have a nativity, for example, that gets them to set up a Twitter account and then engage on Twitter for the rest of the semester. So they're not actually using the forum every week to engage. The forum just tells them how to do it. They reply with their Twitter handle, but thereafter they're actually engaging via Twitter. So they start off on the forum, but they end up somewhere else. It's very important that you just think about that. That's just kind of a house or home for the task. But the task itself does not have to be discussion based or forum based. And then I think you get a bit more buy in from technical type subjects who say, OK, yeah, maybe I could see a way that we could use this. To put this in context, you mentioned that you were using us for students who were both online and face to face. Could you tell us just a little bit about your course in terms of the structure? Yes, of course. So the students are all studying how to become technical writers, instructional designers or e-learning content developers. So initially, the program was only available on campus. And towards the latter years, I was using nativities with the on-campus students. And then when I moved it online as well, it meant it was actually not so difficult for me because the nativities ported very well to the online students. Now we just have students, some of them physically come into my class and they attend lectures. They can download the podcasts afterwards if they want to. The online students access the slides and the podcasts afterwards, but they all engage together in the discussion forums. That sounds a lot like a high flex course where students are getting the same content and they can attend in person or remotely, either synchronously or asynchronously. Yes, it is. And it started off as being on campus only. 
I've read a little bit about your high flex and it wasn't a term I was aware of or I wasn't familiar with that. A lot of my colleagues here in UL, because we are a traditional on-campus institution, they tend to create a different version for the online students. But the way I see it is that you can end up with different learning outcomes if you're giving different types of assignments to students and so on. And if you're smart about it, one activity can engage both groups and it also increases the audience. It means that the on-campus students who might not have much experience actually get to engage with the online students who might have lots of experience. They wouldn't otherwise interact with them. You know, they tend to interact with the other students in the classroom with them. So it it kind of creates a bigger audience with a more varied skill set if they're all engaging in the same activities. Can you talk a little bit about what the experience in the classroom is like when you're using activities for a face-to-face class? I understand that they're all doing the same activity as the way they engage with each other, but what's their in-class experience like? The activity doesn't really impact the in-class experience. For some reason, when we set up the program, as I said, it was on campus only. And when we moved it online, we thought that almost everybody would want to be online and that we wouldn't have a need for on-campus lectures and so on. But most years, it's about 50-50. It can vary a little bit, but some students still actually want to come in and have the lecture, a formal lecture. And other students can't avail of that for whatever reason. So the on-campus experience is very much students coming and listening to kind of a traditional lecture and asking questions and me answering them. We don't tend to work on the activities during the class time because I would have to repurpose that engagement then and try and create another version of that for the online students. So the on-campus delivery is the lecture. The online engagement of the class is really what happens through activities. And it's kind of irrelevant whether you're an online or an on-campus student then. That's the kind of way that works for me anyway and for my students. And you mentioned that the online students listen to podcasts. So do you record the class presentations and share them as podcasts with the class? No is the answer for the majority of times. Though I have played around with different versions. It would obviously be a lot easier for me in one way if I just recorded the live lecture and posted it afterwards. But I often find I spend just as long editing it or thinking, oh, I didn't really explain that very well. I'll re-record it and so on. And that I've usually spent just as long editing afterwards as I have giving the session. And then I end up saying I should have just done a proper separate podcast. So my default setting now is I give my live lecture and then I come and do a podcast of the same lecture, but it's just cleaner. I'm speaking better. Everybody has access to it, though. So it's not like the online students only get that. Everybody has it. So if they do miss a lecture for whatever reason, they can still get the podcast afterwards. And for some reason, students still come to class. Not this week. (laughs) It's student fun week. But normally, I still get students coming to class. And sometimes I do wonder why they're coming to class when there is an alternative. They can still get the same material another way. But some students, they like the fact that they have a dedicated time when they come and they focus on instructional design or e-learning or whatever. And of course, sometimes I do group work during the lectures and so on. But I have to factor in that every way that I interact with the on-campus students, I have to be able to try and replicate that afterwards for the online. So that's why most of the interaction happens through the activities. But sometimes you do have to create supplementary materials because you did a group work exercise in class or whatever, you know. I like the idea of doing the podcast afterwards because then you know what questions were asked and you can address all of those when you're going to record. And quite often it's, I think I really didn't explain that as well as I could have, or I stumbled on that, or they didn't seem to get it when I said it in class. I'm going to explain it more clearly now in the podcast. And at least I know that everybody has access to that. So I'm not giving a better version to the online students. They all have access. So that works for me, even though it does feel like I'm double teaching sometimes. Dress rehearsal in the final performance. Yes, exactly. When I first started teaching online, I did the same thing. I was teaching a face-to-face class in an online class, and I recorded videos for all of the online students, which I then shared with the face-to-face students. And Great. An hour and 20-minute class became maybe 
two or three 10 minute videos because you could do it more concisely and more focused presentation. Well, the few times I have recorded the live sessions, maybe due to, you know, being under pressure at work or whatever reason, they've complained. They get used to the higher quality podcast and then they say, oh, I could hear somebody going in and out the door or I couldn't hear the questions they were asking. So if you go down that path of recording separate podcasts, you can't really go back to recording a live session because they'll find them not sufficiently clear. So it's fine if you start with that. They won't notice. They'll be just thrilled to have access to the lecture materials. But it's whatever kind of standard you set, you kind of have to maintain it then. So, <laughs> But it would be easier on me if I didn't have to go and do it again <laughs> in lots of ways. We had a really similar experience when we first started the podcast. We created the intro, a very short introduction to the podcast. And we showed it to our advisory board that advises the teaching center. And one of the people there said, I think it was intended as a compliment, that it sounds so professional. It doesn't sound like you at all. <laughs> oh, definitely. <laughs> My children say that to me, too. You sound weird in the podcast. And I'm like, I'm just talking more slowly and I'm thinking about what I'm saying rather than talking super fast <laughs> in class, maybe or whatever. Yeah. I do pause it when I'm recording it and I do go back and say that wasn't good enough or your voice is a bit weak there. You know what I mean? So it is a better quality production. I would be very keen to emphasize to my colleagues that you don't want to create a situation where you're then giving yourself five hours of editing work after every lecture either. Your live lectures are not perfect and it's fine, but there's nothing wrong with doing a little bit of editing, but I wouldn't waste too much time in it either or you'll just never upload it. That's the other danger. You talk a little bit more about the role of the instructor in the eTivity. You talked about designing it and writing the instructions, but what happens afterwards? Can you describe that a little bit? Yeah. So as I said, in my case, all the eTivities are graded. The first one, the icebreaker one, this year I decided not to give marks for it because everybody was going to get full marks and it was kind of a bit too easy. <laughs> so I decided to only give marks if they didn't do it, which made them all do it. And the purpose of that was to get them to engage quickly. But for all the other activities, there are marks going for it. So it's a couple of percent maybe for each part. It does involve me copying and pasting the forum-based messages into a Word document and reading through them and annotating them with little comments and then sharing it back with each individual student. So the feedback only goes back to the individual student, even though they've all seen each other's submissions. So it'll be a mixture then of quantitative and qualitative techniques. So I might look at like, have they stuck to the word count I suggested? So they tend to be relatively short answers, you know, like 300 words max or something like that. So have they adhered to that? Have they answered the question I asked? Have they got some citations to relevant literature in the part where they have to respond to somebody else? Have they given them some useful suggestions? Or are they just saying, oh, that's a wonderful idea, Mary? So the qualitative part takes a little bit more time. They are time consuming. My classes could be 20 to 35 students. Having two or three activities in a semester is still plenty of work. I feel like I'm kind of grading all the time. But they really do engage them and they have activities to do from early on rather than just every week logging in, listening to a podcast, reading all the readings and then having a big assignment at the end. It does require them to do things more often. And as I said, I'm relying mostly on asynchronous interaction. So it has to be highly structured that they're not wondering what they have to do. That's why I mentioned thinking carefully about the task and what is actually manageable. I mean, just because I can do it in an hour this evening, they don't know anything about the topic that you've just set them. So they have to read all the readings, maybe listen to your podcast, look at your slides, read what other people have said to get a feel for it, and then post their 300 words. So that could be a four hour task for them. So it's a little bit of a trial and error thing that the first time you issue an activity, you think it's very doable and you might realize it takes them way more time than you thought. And that's why over the years, I've paired back to the most essential activities that I really just do not want to drop. 
that I know engage them enough that it's not just logging in and listening to a podcast every week. It's important to engage them as well. You mentioned that the students reply to each other's contributions. Do you also reply to those or do you wait until the end to provide feedback? Usually I wait until the end. Now, in the ideal world, when we're teaching online, we would have tutors available to help us with this. I don't have any tutors. So everything, all the VLE work, everything, you know, uploading materials and all podcasting and everything else is all done by me. Possibly the same for you. But I have colleagues in other departments in my university who have educational technologists who do a lot of that and who do a lot of the tedious things like downloading people's forum postings or saving them in documents and all that kind of thing. If I didn't have to spend so much time on those kinds of things, I would probably engage more frequently with their contributions. But there's a relatively short time between when the activity appears and when you have to contribute something. And there might be two or three parts to it. So part A and part B might be due at the same day. And then part C might be read over what other people said in A and B and give some of them feedback. Because I try and align them with one another, I do return the feedback for one activity before the next activity is due because it usually has a knock-on effect on what they do the second time around. But I do find it's very demanding on me. And every year I say, I shouldn't do this, <laughs> even though it's a good outcome for the students. So that's something you have to factor in as well, is that if something is issued in week five and due in week six, and if another one due in week seven, or you're going to issue another one in week seven, they're immediately going to be asking you, well, how did I do in the last one I submitted last week? So you have to have factored in some grading time into your week six or seven schedule. So that's just something else to kind of watch there. So yes, so to answer your question, when they propose an e-learning course topic and they give me some details on the typical audience, I will give them feedback on that before the next activity, which is to write the tasks they might teach in the course. So I might say to them, well, your topic is too broad, or have you looked at what other e-learning courses exist on that topic, or have you thought about this and that? That should impact the kind of tasks they write in the next activity. So it is important to get them feedback in between. I also wondered if you could talk a little bit about how e-tivities fit into other coursework that students are doing, or are students just doing the e-tivities as part of your classes? No. So, for example, the one where they propose the topic for an e-learning course and the audience requirements and so on, and then later on they propose some tasks that they would like to teach in that course. So let's say it's on safe cycling in the city. They would have to identify certain tasks that the learner would need to be able to do, you know, like pick appropriate equipment or clothing to wear when they're cycling and buy the right lights for their bicycle or whatever it might be. So they'd have to outline the tasks they would teach. The main assignment then for that module would be to develop a podcast that teaches the learner how to do one or more of those tasks. So it could be a podcast on buying the right equipment for your bicycle or whatever. So there's an instructional design process integrated into those activities. And the same then for the other group where they have to work in a team. They're only online students in another course I teach. They're only online students. They have to develop an e-learning course as a group. So they have to form a team, first of all. They don't know each other. They've never met. They only have the forums to really interact. So they have to find other like-minded people via the forums, pick a topic, decide who's going to do what, who's going to be the instructional designer, the editor, the writers, whatever. They have to identify what sources they're going to use for the course they're going to develop. These are all activities, by the way. <laughs> These are all different parts of activities. And they have to come up with some sample interface designs. So that might be only seven weeks into the term they will have done all that. And I find the activities really good for group work where I don't know about you, but in my experience, when you ask students to get in groups or to form groups themselves, they could spend five weeks trying to find teammates. Whereas if you give them a structured activity where it says by week two, you have to have found three other team members. By week three, you have to have decided who's doing what. 
it's a really good way of organizing them online because they've small, relatively easy deliverables, but they're due and there's marks going for them. Whereas if there's kind of a, you have to have an e-learning course developed by week 12, they've 12 weeks to get their act together. You know, they'll manage it somehow. So it's a very good way of organizing them, particularly when you're talking about online students, because they have other commitments. So all those small activities all feed into the final project, which is actually produce an e-learning course based on all the submissions. I have a question about that process of forming groups. I assigned a podcast assignment last term. I strongly encourage them to do it in groups of two or three. And there were only two pairs. I allowed them to do them individually. And most people did that, which meant a bit more work for them and a whole lot more work for me. <laughs> yep. Do you use a discussion forum to get students to form their groups? Or is there some type of prompt that you've used to get students to effectively form those groups? I know I sound like a broken record now, but it's actually the eativity. So the eativity is use this particular forum by Friday of week one, you have to identify a group. I have a dedicated space for finding people, but that's not where they respond with their team members. They respond to the eativity with their team members. I'm really amazed how this works, but it really does work. So you'll have, hi, I'm John. I live in Dublin. I'd prefer to have somebody who lives near me in case we need to meet, but I'm happy to work with anyone. I'm thinking we could develop a course about safe cycling. And then you'll get somebody else say, yeah, I love cycling too. I might go with you. And that just happens in that casual forum space. But then once you've got four people who agree straight away, then they reply to the activity with, here is our group. And they list the four members and that's it. That's all I grade is the four names have they got four names rather than worrying about who's interacting with who and how they finally got to that destination. In your activity, then, do you describe to the students, use this finding like forum to find each other and then report back? Yes, it's very prescriptive. It's like you <laughs> really need to spell it out. And I even give them links to these are some of the challenges you will encounter as a team. You know, that kind of the forming, storming stages and um, the characteristics of a good team, the kinds of things to watch out for. So I just alert them to these are likely things that are going to happen in your group this semester while you're doing loads of other assignments at the same time and working and whatever else. So they're alert to it. They can choose whether or not they want to read those, but at least they know that there are possible challenges coming. But definitely breaking up those stages into smaller stages where they get 2% for finding a team and they get 3% for dividing up the roles and agreeing on them by week three. It definitely works. It's surprisingly productive. I had tried that. I put together a discussion forum for them to find partners and to select their topics, but I didn't make it mandatory that they had to. And so that discussion forum was used by one person who suggested <laughs> a topic and no one else responded. And I should have probably started the assignment by requiring teams. Yeah. Well, over the years, I've tried the technique of wouldn't it be great if students did these things voluntarily and then always disappointed that only the really good students did it voluntarily. So I pretty much tend to have 10 to 20% of every course is e-tivities and the other 80% is for the bigger assignment, whether it's a podcast or an e-learning course or an e-portfolio or whatever. I think the scaffolding is something that students really want. And I think a lot of times when it's just in a final project assignment, yeah, that like you should do this by this date and this by this date, even though it's scaffolded in the way that you've thought about it or designed it, the students don't treat it like it's scaffolded. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm sure you've had the same experience where you write a seven page document that clearly specifies all the things you want them to do and when, and they'll still not do things on those deadlines. So this is the way of like, look, this is simple. 
four people agree with each other by a certain date. And it's great because they're doing interface designs in a group by week five or six when they would still be messing about and trying to find people to merge with. And then if I see there's somebody left over who doesn't have a team, I'll say, well, this group only has three. You can go with them or whatever. But they tend to get themselves sorted. Now, I did use it with undergraduates, the final year undergraduates, and I worked with them as well. And they were on-campus students. But it mightn't be as useful for maybe first years or second years or freshmen or whatever. But it certainly did work for more senior undergraduates. Mine were freshmen, but I didn't provide that requirement. That extra step. Next time. The next time. Because many of them were very, very good. But the ones that were jointly done were, in general, quite a bit better. I find if I give students a choice about working together or on their own, they tend to pick on their own as well. And I think, to be honest, if I was asked, if it was an assignment and it's been graded, I would say, you know what, I think at least I don't want to be cross at anyone else for not engaging. I'm just going to do this by myself. I won't have to rely on anyone else. I know it's not how we work in the real world, but when there are marks at stake, you kind of want to have full responsibility for what you hand up. So I find it very hard to get people to voluntarily engage in groups. How do you manage when you're doing activities that are collaborative? The question always comes up, like, does everyone get the same grade? Do people get different grades? Well, bear in mind now that there's a very small number of marks going for each of these parts. So like if there's 2% going for somebody in your group, the designated team leader uploading four names and your team by Friday, they'll all get the 2%. It's simple. It takes me one minute to grade that. When it comes to maybe an interface design that's proposed as a group, then they'll all get the same marks unless, and I'll always have that disclaimer in there, that unless the rest of the group contact me to say that somebody is not engaging, then I'll deal with it separately. I've done a lot of research on virtual teams and those kinds of challenges. The default is that they'll all get the same mark unless they speak up about it. So if you don't hear about it, then the onus is on you to accept that all your team members will get the same mark. If they were worth 30% each or something, I think people might be a little bit more precious about, well, I actually did more work than they did. But they're sufficiently small that if you're not pulling your weight for nativity, you're probably not going to do very well on the big assignment either. How have students responded to the use of nativities? At no point have I asked students, like, do you like nativities versus something else? They just come in, they're immersed in the nativities. Not all my colleagues use them now, so they don't have them in every course that they're studying. But the way I see it is, I mean, obviously, we get our courses evaluated every year and there's never anything negative said about activities. A lot of people would comment on how they like the clear instructions and they like how things are organized and they know where to go and so on. I think the thing that speaks loudest for me is how people do the right thing in the right place and that they don't post their answer in the wrong place. And I think that says a lot about how clear my activities are, that they're not left wondering. So I've seen activities written by other people where I'm thinking, do I click reply here or do I have to email it? what's the deadline or do I have to collaborate before I respond and so on. If they're very clear, if you put all that work into refining them, and I tend to refine them every year, if I find there's a lot of questions about an activity this year that I've issued several times before, I will make a note next year, make sure you explain this clearer or whatever, you know, in my Word document. Something that's very obvious to me, some years just isn't as obvious to my students. So just keep refining them. And that's one of the great things about them is it's like a good assignment. You can reuse it every year. And each year it should be even more perfect than the previous year. Would you mind if we share a link to your collection of activities on your show notes? Yes, of course. And I have, in addition to a list links to activities, I have a very long list of resources that people might use for teaching and learning, like blogging tools, collaborative authoring tools, rubrics for teaching online and so on. So just one of the things in there is a, a list of some activities by my colleagues. I'm trying to get more people on board to using activities, but as I get good activities from colleagues, I add them. It's not a huge collection of them, but it gives you a flavor for how different disciplines can use them. Wonderful. 
we always end or wrap up by asking, what's next? Well, I suppose one of the things I do kind of in addition to my day job as faculty member is I do a lot of professional development workshops kind of voluntarily with my colleagues. So trying to help them either just use technology more in their day to day teaching or even to develop online programs as well. And in that, then I try and encourage them to use activities. You know, this is a really good tool. This is how I teach online all the time. It's not some elaborate software system you have to install or anything like that. So that's where the collection of activities we're just talking about has come from. Those workshops where people start developing their own activities in class, they refine them every year and then they find them really useful. So that, that's where the collection is coming from. I'm doing a lot of professional development in the area. And now with the talks, as we were talking earlier about the possible closures of universities and so on, I probably will have a lot more people using activities in the next few weeks than maybe we originally planned. So I'm going to continue my work with the professional development. I mean, we're not trying to convert everybody into online. We just want to show them good ways of using technology that might make things they're doing at the moment more user friendly, enjoyable, less time consuming and so on. So it's about appropriate use of technology rather than moving everything into the online space. Not everything should be delivered that way. Not everything can be delivered that way, but a lot of things can. My focus in the next while will be on just making people more aware of what can be done rather than focusing on specific tools and getting anxious about hardware and software and things like that. Great. Thank you. This has been wonderful. Thank you very much, John and Rebecca. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you so much. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.